Welcome to the Wealthy Circle Podcast, where we take a deeper dive into this year's finalists and winners from our WealthManagement.com 2020 Industry Awards. These interviews cover the challenges, innovations, and trends in the wealth management industry and the individuals working to help advisors better help their clients. Hello there, and welcome to the Wealthies Podcast. I'm David Armstrong, Executive Director of Content for WealthManagement.com, and this is the podcast where we speak to winners of our WealthManagement.com Industry Awards. As you all know, these are the awards that recognize initiatives among firms that help financial advisors grow better practices and better serve their clients. And today, I'm very happy to welcome Evan Rappaport, the founder and CEO of SmartX Advisory Solutions. Evan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. So Evan, you guys uh, in 2020 awards were recognized by the judges for the alternative investment platform, which is a fairly robust category. And there's some there's some strong competition in there, uh, increasingly strong competition there. Uh, but the judges recommend, recognized you guys for the uh, unified managed account uh, access to alternatives and cryptocurrency. And we'll get into those a little bit in a minute. Uh, but why not for the people who are listening who may not be as familiar with SmartX, just kind of take a step back and give us the 101 background of what SmartX Advisory Solutions is and what problems financial advisors have that you're trying to solve for. Sure. Yeah. Th- thanks again for the opportunity, David. So um, SmartX, here at SmartX, we build unified managed accounts technology. So um, a lot of the advisors who are probably listening may use TAMPS and TAMPS operate and uh, utilize managed accounts technology to run their practice. Now, um, we run a TAMP as well, right? So we are front facing, but when you think about TAMP, I want you to think of TAMP as a service layer, right? That it would be the trading and the middle and back office and the billing and and those sorts of of tasks. Whereas the technology behind the TAMP um, that allows these SMAs, the separately managed accounts to coexist alongside of each other in a sleeve format, the ability to rebalance those, the ability to do tax loss harvesting and substitutions and exclusions and uh, have a single contract where you can select from thousands of strategies. That's really what the technology does and brings to the table. And that's what we're able to provide. Um, So again, not to, to belabor this too far, but when you think about the firm, there's really two parts of our firm. One is the technology portion where we build the tech and we support other firms that want to have, uh, stand up their own TAMP structure. And those could be other custodians, other fintechs, um, uh, certainly asset managers, um, and anybody that wants to be able to deliver models at scale. So they could go ahead and utilize our technology. And then the other side, again, we're running the front-facing TAMP where we have individual advisors and broker-dealers that need access to a UMA platform where they can, um, again, access all of those different products and those managers with intuitive uh, solutions that, um, that they can uh, utilize from their desktop. And we provide that as well. So those are sort of the two parts of our business, if that makes sense, David. Yeah, sure, it does. And, uh, you know, I think maybe you could help us understand a little bit if we differentiated uh, your TAMP from some of the others that are out there that advisors could uh, access. Uh, how would you say, is it simply the uh, increased access to uh, uh, alternative strategies that you have there? Or is it in the execution? Is it in the um, uh, the ability for advisors to customize these things. How would you differentiate yourself in the TAMP uh, category? That's, that's a great question. Thank you for that. So, um, you know, we came to this space later than the rest, right? So when we entered the space, 
the three other players, because I really only think about four players that really do what we do in terms of building managed accounts technology. And the other three would be Investnet, Vestmark, and Fiserv, now Tegra. Um, and then there's us, right? But the legacy solutions are just that. And there's not, you know, there's, uh, I'm not trying to dig against those, those solutions, but um, they, they are older and older solutions tend to use older technology. And so they tend to be closed architecture, um, not really API driven. So there's a lack of customization capabilities and such. Um, they are not able to be integrated as a result of the closed architecture. And, uh, and they trade um, typically with two daily windows. So trades typically will occur if not that day, the next day or the following day. So that's the way that the traditional UMA structure, TAM structure has worked. Whereas we were fortuitous in that we came to the industry later. And as such, we got to use uh, the most contemporary technology and uh, provide a platform and stand up a platform that really in our opinion meets the needs of today's advisor um, you know, versus an advisor 20 years ago. So when you think about the differences at the highest level between SmartX and the other UMA or TAMP solutions that are out there, here's what I would think about. First, um, everything we do is real time or near real time. And what I mean by that is when you look at the performance of these models on SmartX, you will see that performance intraday. You will not see that anywhere else. If you want to be able to allocate to that model, you can do that right then and there immediately on the platform without latency. Liquidation would be the same. In fact, you can even come out of a model and into a new model that same day. You cannot do that anywhere else. Um, so real-time everything is important. And that's not just on the advisor side, that's also on the trading side. So when the managers provide us with a model change at 10 o'clock, we're typically trading that within a few minutes into the market. And what that does, David, is cause minimal dispersion between the manager's model and the actual strategy that's employed Right. You, could you imagine going through the pandemic, which you know many of these TAMPs did, and the markets are moving at 10% a day, 7% a day, and you're trading a day or two late, that's no longer the same strategy. Right? So real-time everything we think is really important. That's one big difference. Second would be that we're API-driven from the core. So literally every single piece of data that comes out of our system is driven by an API. We work off a microservices architecture, which means we're horizontally scalable in the AWS cloud. We can load millions of accounts and you will not see our system slow one iota. Um, and, uh, and what the APIs also allow for is extensibility, uh, you know, the ability to be modular so you can take a component of our system and use it versus the entire system. It's extensible, it's flexible, um, and it's fast, right? So APIs are second. Uh, third would be the breadth of strategy. We're the only UMA solution to support long, short, short only, option specific, market neutral, covered calls, in addition to long only and direct indexing. And of course, the crypto strategy that we won the award for. So the breadth of product is really uh, fantastic within SmartX and allows advisors um, to be able to, uh, in our opinion, do a better job of servicing all clients as a result of the breadth of product that they have available. And so that would be number three. And four would be that open architecture piece. Um, you know, we've done a lot of integrations, including running uh, the UMA platform for Black Diamond and SSNC Advent. So SmartX is their exclusive UMA platform. We're not exclusive to them. We're offered everywhere. But um, as it relates to uh, SSNC, they've chosen us as their exclusive provider. And that allows us to pass sleeve level detail through Black Diamond. So you can use Black Diamond the way it was intended with its full functionality. And uh, that's a big benefit 
outfit. And part of that, of course, is the sleeves. We deliver true sleeves. So when you think about a UMA and you want the individual components broken out, our sleeve data is uh, very precise. We keep our investment book of record at the sleeve level. So our data is incredibly accurate. Um, and we even understand that the position is assigned to that sleeve from a tax perspective, which is even different than tax law tagging. It's a better Right. And so I've said a lot. Thanks for letting me get that out there. But those are some of the differences between us and the other groups. Yeah, sure. Tell me a little bit about the open API and why that is different. Uh, and I think advisors have sometimes a hard time wrapping their heads around uh, why open API is, is a, a better option to go for this modularity. You're, you're able to plug into all the custodial platforms. You're, you're there and you're able to do transactions where the advisor does their transactions, correct? Yeah, and that's traditional for a TAMP, right? So that's a basic integration. When you're talking about the custodians, um, you won't actually use their APIs. The APIs at the custodians aren't great. So what they'll, what they'll prefer that you do is fix trade, right? So you use fix, uh, you know, the institutional uh, sort of network for transactions and you'll trade out those individual custodians. So yes, we're integrated with all major custodians, but what the APIs really allow for, and you, you sort of touched on it was the modularity. So we have clients who, for example, have their own platform and we're embedded within, we're driving that platform through our UMA engine, but they've been able to add their own planning tools, their own risk module, right? Their real-time quotes, right? Whatever they want, and they can build their own solution that is in fact proprietary to them, right? And using us as a core component of that. And so that's really unique. And as you continue to think through, David, larger firms that, for example, are a risk provider, and if they want to be able to offer full TAMP solutions, they can go ahead and take our components and plug them in and, and go ahead and do just that. So the APIs are important from that aspect. Um, they're important if you just want to take the information and feed it in through your own uh, portal, right? So forget building a platform, but you want to grab that information and you want to house it within your own uh, structure, you can do that and you don't have to come to SmartX. You can literally be a client of just our APIs. Right. And so that's really unique. And so there are a lot of benefits to to being able to utilize that API structure to really create and craft a, a solution that, you know, is, in fact, proprietary. And, and the performance reporting for clients. Right. That's important as well. I mean, uh... very important. Yeah. So we you know, while we provide performance reporting. Um, as it relates to SmartX, we are not a reporting platform, right? And that's where we partner with, you know, firms like SSNC, and we service clients at uh, Adapar or, you know, Orion or other firms, um, because they will typically want their reporting from, you know, from a third party. One thing we know, you know, going into this uh, as a late, you know, late comer, is that clients, you know, they, they are comfortable with different software solutions for different reasons. Most of them don't want an all-in-one solution, right? And when you're talking about larger firms, which tend to be our clients, we tend to work with larger uh, firms, uh, typically a billion plus or so. But when you think about those groups, they may have groups that one group uses Orion, another group uses Adapar, another one uses Black Diamond. So you need to be open and be able to support all of them, right? Same with risk. One may use Riskalyze, another one with Metrica. And the benefit to those APIs is being able to integrate all of those. So it's not just the custodian. Example, I have a new client coming on who's using Riskalyze and Adapar, and we've got to do some integrations for them so we can make the data flow proper between the, the different parties. Right, and so that's a benefit to those APIs. If you're using one of the legacy structures, you could not do that integration and service those clients. How many uh, uh, strategists do you have on the platform? Uh, we're about two, I wanna say 
230, 240, somewhere thereabouts. Um, it's a lot. We get a lot of requests. We've been a little bit restrictive. We didn't want to be a Costco of models necessarily, but we started bringing on so many new clients and they have existing strategies that they may utilize and don't want to change. So we'll bring them over. And, uh, and you know, as we continue to grow, uh, the demand for certain strategies continues to rise. So we've been adding a lot of new firms lately. And speak to me about how important it is to have the access to the alternative strategies uh, and why that's maybe a differentiator and uh, why advisors need these things. Well, I mean, it's not that they need them, right? So advisors can make do and advise clients in whatever way they feel comfortable, right? So it's not a matter of need, but it is a matter of want. And it and sort of nice to have, right? Because if you don't have access to those products, you don't recognize how useful they can be, right? When we talk about the markets headed down in in March, right? If you had you know one or two of these components within a larger portfolio, it could have protected the portfolio against that downdraft and minimized the volatility within. Now, other strategies can do that as well, but there are many clients that want access to those types of products. And it may be that only 10% of your clients need access, maybe 2%. But if you can't service that 2%, you're going to lose that client. So you need access to that product to be able to do your job better, right? To service all clients, not just one subset of clients. You can't service everybody with an ETF strategist portfolio. It's just not going to work. Right, right. I guess that's what I'm getting at. There are certainly a number of asset management firms that have 40 act products, mutual funds, ETFs uh, that purport to do what uh, the best alternative long short strategy might do: mitigate downside risk, etc. Uh, you know, why is it better to do these things in a UMA platform like yours than it is to just simply tack on a couple of uh, satellite positions in a mutual fund or ETF. Sure. So there's a the, we're unpacking a there's a number of different items to unpack there. The first is mutual funds versus SMAs, right? So forget the alternative mutual fund or 40 act. You know, mutual fund. Um, uh, what you really want to think about is just traditionally, why would you use an SMA over a mutual fund? Well, the reasons are, are plentiful. First, they're less costly, right? Mutual funds are expensive. The structuring, the expense associated with the structuring, distribution expense, sales expense, et cetera. Um, and you may look at a fund that it may have expense ratio of 1% or more. That same product in an SMA may be half the cost, right? Because there are no and is no structuring that's necessary. There's less liability and regulatory constraint. Uh, and concern because the uh, third-party asset manager is simply delivering us a model and we're in effect uh, transacting, right? And employing those uh, products within the client account. So it's much easier for them and much less costly as it relates to standing up the product and maintaining the product, right? Above and beyond cost though, you have uh, other benefits, uh, uh, things like uh, tax, right? So when you think about tax from a mutual fund perspective, if you invest in a mutual fund, today and they bought Apple 20 years ago and tomorrow they sell Apple, guess who's paying the taxes on that? Mm -hmm. You. And yep. you just got into the fund. So that's not tax efficient. Moreover, you can't tax loss harvest. So you can't go through like you can with an SMA and pull out those losers and uh, substitute right, a 100% highly correlated ETF or other product and, and, and go ahead and capture that gain or that loss as a result of the tax loss harvesting. Tax loss harvesting can add 1% to 3% worth of tax alpha to the portfolio. It's substantial. So that's another big benefit, right? Exclusions, substitutions, you cannot exclude certain securities from a mutual fund, of course, so you don't have the same customization capabilities. Um, and so the list goes on, right, as to, you know, why 
SMA over mutual fund. And we've done lots of homework. We've actually got some white papers um, from products that we have from Alliance Bernstein where they have the mutual fund and they have the SMA. And you will see that the SMA outperforms by you know approximately 1% or so on an annual basis. Um, yeah. Now, that said, let's talk about 40-act for a second, Dave, because I don't want to leave that, right? 40-act mutual funds, I come out of the hedge fund space, are watered down products. You're not allowed to short as much as you can within a true hedge fund, you've got a limitation, I think it's 30%. You can't um, borrow, right? You can't uh, leverage the portfolio as much as a hedge fund can. So you can't really operate a true market neutral, for example, in a mutual fund format, 40 act mutual fund. Um, so you get the watered down version, right, of that product with a ton of expenses flowing through it in the 40 act version. So if I compare the two, there's not even a there's not even a comparison relative to performance and, of course, all the benefits of the SMA versus that, you know, closed yeah. structure. Yeah, and we saw a, a wave of asset managers marketing, quote unquote, liquid alternatives uh, in mutual funds to advisors uh, a couple of years ago. I mean, there was a long, big wave of them uh, and they all kind of seemed to, to disappear. You well, that's because the... hedge funds became less interesting, right? I mean, hedge yeah. funds fatality have not been able to attract assets over the last 10 years because the market's been heading straight up and you can right, exactly. you know, find products that are performing better for much lesser cost. Sure. But, you know, so one of the reasons that I think advisors and tell me if I'm wrong, uh, have been, there was always a sense that it was the larger advisors, mostly wirehouse advisors that used the uh, separately managed accounts, unified managed accounts, uh, and that the, you know, the ETF strategists and the mutual funds were for smaller advisors. The technology is eroding that barrier. I don't know what your minimums are, and I know that most of your clients are larger firms, 1 billion plus, as you say, but what do you make of this notion that the kind of the what some people refer to as the SMA for the masses or the managed accounts for the masses, the technology is making it easier to kind of come down market uh, and get more, perhaps not pejoratively, but smaller, more boutique advisors uh, uh, into those kinds of investments or portfolios. You know, I think I think the democratization right, relative to access is great, right? I mean, why shouldn't the smaller advisor gain access to the same products that the larger advisor gains access to, right? Um, I think the, the problem for many of those advisors is that they've only had access to ETF strategist portfolios and not, you know, true uh, sort of actively managed SMAs. And so, you know, that's what I find from a lot of the smaller firms is that, you know, they, they again, only have access, you know, to, you know, very sort of vanilla type portfolios. And those are what you find on those model marketplaces, for example, mm -hmm. static mm -hmm. models that are free, 60-40, they don't trade. You can basically pull the portfolio from a web page and employ it yourself, right? Um, but that's a, what a lot of those firms have been unfortunately restricted or, or confined to, right? And now they're gaining access to the breadth that we talked about earlier, which is exciting for them um, also. But I, uh, I think, you know, using models is a critical uh, can be a critical component to scaling a practice, right? I mean, the lack of necessity relative to managing individual, individual equities and portfolios as, a, as, a, as an advisor is, uh, is paramount, right? I mean, it's not a revenue producing activity to manage those assets, right? And most of the advisors are not qualified to manage those assets. They are planners, they're not analysts, right? And to watch Apple's earnings and try to pick stocks is not really what they're best at and what they should be doing. They should be working with third-party asset managers who have staffs that, you know, uh, sort of uh, do the homework and, and manage those portfolios uh, closely every day of every week of every year, right? And the clients are, of course, paying for those fees as they would with any mutual fund or hedge fund product. Fees are lesser. And so I think the benefits are, 
you know, enormous to both the advisor and the client to use those third-party asset manager strategies and to scale their practice, whether they be smaller or larger, as opposed to trying to do it themselves. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking of, uh, we just did a couple of stories on the, well, some are calling the rise of direct indexing um, and, you know, how these uh, managed account platforms, and there've been a lot of asset management firms that have made acquisitions over the past year uh, getting into the direct, what I guess some would call direct indexing. Some people don't think that's the right word for it, uh, into the direct indexing space. Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, you know, where direct indexing is going or, or what it means for, for advisors? Yeah, no, I think direct indexing is, is great, right? I think they can be a wonderful part of a portfolio. Um, you know, we think about diff- direct indexing a little bit differently. There's, there's sort of two different flavors of direct indexing. There's the, the, the first type, which is what you see from firms like Orion or, or Folio FN when they were around. And that was, you know, we're going to try to recreate the index synthetically using a certain amount of positions that's going to give us a certain amount of correlation and the return uh, versus the, you know, larger constituent list in the, within the index, right? It can be, it can be tweaked for uh, client needs, right? It can be individualized. Or, That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you can customize that and use the tools there. And uh, those are great. I think there's a lot of great programs there and, uh, and firms that, that employ that tech. We, we don't or, or provide that. We, we think about it a little bit differently. Um, we actually work with the large index providers, firms like FTSE Russell, Thomson Reuters, MSCI, S-Networks, and we make their indexes available in their full constituent format. And then the advisors can come in and they can optimize them or tax those harvest or whatever. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, a little bit different on our side versus their side. Uh, you, you give me a bunch of food. I'm not going to cook you a gourmet meal. I'm just not qualified to do that, right? There's a reason what these, these uh, index firms have 200 quants on staff to optimize those indexes, right? And there's a benefit of those. So, so we've taken that route. Now, can it be used to manage a client's portfolio? Sure. I mean, you can, you can index, right? Lots of clients are indexed. It's the same as owning SPY and AGG. And, you know, you can go out there and put together a portfolio that probably does well over a period of time. It really depends upon your client's risk return objectives, right? I mean, if you index and the market goes down 50%, well, you're going to go down 50%, right? And if your clients are comfortable with that, that's great. You know, what are their objectives? What are their timelines? Right. Because you can't, you know, I think we've had such a good market for so long, David, that people forget the lost decade, for example, from 2000 you know, to 2009, right, yeah. where there was no return in the market for 10 years, 10 years. So, you know, it's those types of scenarios where you look for alpha and you look for uh, whether it's third party asset managers or strategies that can outperform and reduce risk. Right. And I think ideally that's, that's personally what I look for. I've still got eight securities licenses and I don't manage client assets individually any longer, but, um, but I'm, I'm big on, on, on mitigating risk, right. And providing the best possible return, you know, along with that risk. So that's something that's hard to do with indexing. Certainly you can use an index as a component of a larger portfolio. Um, but I like to uh, be able to put together a portfolio that, that, that uh, to your point earlier, does meet that client specific needs and, and, uh, and having all of those strategies and being able to mix and match in different proportion really gives you the ability to do that more so than indexing, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. It just seems that the tools that were once available for the large advisor, the, the advisor uh, with a big practice uh, or you know connected to a warehouse are now increasingly becoming available to smaller uh, boutique advisors as well. Yeah, just like everything, right? Democratization. So in every yeah. industry, right, you, eventually the costs come down to the point where it becomes affordable for everybody. And in this case, you know, available for everybody. Yep. Uh, we do want to talk about uh, crypto because I think that was one of the things that the advisors were, or that the judges were uh, uh, looking to SmartX for. Uh, you're the only TAMP that offers access to the, I think, the IDX Crypto Opportunity Index. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about that and, and, and answer this question for me. 
are there really advisors who are interested in investing in cryptocurrency? Oh yes, and growing fast, right? I mean, really? certainly <laughs> the the. I mean, uh, right now it's it's uh, December seventeenth, twenty twenty, right? So, three years ago we hit the high, right, uh, for Bitcoin, and since then we've only seen you know it lower until yesterday, right, yeah. where we saw it higher again, and now today we're up at you know what is close to twenty. 3,000 or so on Bitcoin, right? 22,700 hit 23,000 and change. So when you have- We should say we're recording this in mid-December, around December 17th, so. Yes, yes. So, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, an asset class that's gone up 500%, right? Within a very short timeframe, of course, advisors want access and their clients are asking about the product, right? How do I get access? Do I need this? What is this, right? And, And I would argue that, you know, to the extent the client is qualified that, every client should have some access to crypto, right? I mean, even a small percentage, I know you've heard this everywhere, but it rings true. Even 1% of a portfolio should be allocated. And uh, uh, one of the, 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 the folks that I love who describes it is, uh, uh, I forget how to pronounce his form, it's Chamath uh, Papatia. I totally destroyed his name, but um, you probably know him. He's uh, social capital, right? He was part of oh, Facebook yeah, yeah. and such. Yep. And uh, Hamach. Chamath, I don't know. I, I yes. <laughs> butcher it, but uh, guy's clearly a genius, and he calls you know Bitcoin schmuck insurance, right? And I think it's a great <laughs> way to think about it, right? It is that, you know, if the financial system uh, continues to crumble, it continues to be debased, right, in the way that it is, and devalued and such, and so you know, having access to to a store of value, right, and some you know may consider it to be currency of some sort that doesn't you know and isn't impacted by that monetary policy, has a fixed supply, right, and and has utility that's continually growing. I think is important, right, and it has a you know, uh, obviously a tech component to it that, you know, gives you that sort of, you know, upside, right, that you get out of a tech stock with, you know, what is a currency in essence. But, um, but you know, from a return perspective, certainly just gaining access to a product that's up 500%, even with a small percentage of your portfolio can be very impactful. Two, if it does continue to move in the way that you've got folks like Stanley Druckenmiller and, and Bill Miller and uh, Raul Paul and um, Paul Tudor Jones, which are, pretty bright macro minds, right? Telling you that they're putting their their hard uh, earned dollars and, and managed money into Bitcoin, right? As opposed to gold or in addition to gold, then I think you have to stand up and take notice, right? It's It's been through 12 years where the testing, it's been through lots of different market scenarios. It has held uh, strong. It has never been penetrated in terms of the network um, and it, the adoption continues to grow. What we're finding now is that, you know, Bitcoin is really being looked at more of a store of value as opposed to a currency, which I think is appropriate. Um, you know, it's not fast in terms of its transaction speed. So to use it as a, a currency really isn't 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 uh, appropriate, um, just wouldn't work. Even Ether um, doesn't transact as fast as a Visa or you, know, you get to like a Ripple and that would, but um, but anyway, going back. So, you know, Bitcoin continues to, um, I think, start to command a position within a client portfolio that will uh, be alongside or even take the place of gold, right? And so it allows for that mitigation relative to certain risks um, that are present in holding fiat and just, you know, traditional securities that are, that are valued in fiat. Um, and, um, and, and it, 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 uh, it allows for some protection. Uh, yeah. Again, if we do see, you know, the markets head down. Now we did see high correlation. So in a liquidation period, everything goes down, including gold and silver. When you start to see monetary policy 
um, and the dollar fall the way that it has, you look for you know an alternative that um, will be able to uh, counteract the uh, and and uh, uh, negatively correlate against that downside, and that's what Bitcoin yeah, does. For sure, and I think though for many advisors, there's uh, I'm sure probably compliance reasons that uh, kind of make them a little frightened of. of you know, putting their clients into let's, it. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, that's yeah. true, right? So if you, the, the problem with crypto for many has been custody, right? I mean, to open mm -hmm. a client account at a at a crypto custodian and get them to fill out paperwork and get discretion over that, I mean, it's clunky, right, at best and difficult. And so that's one of the reasons. And can I even trust the custody and such? Um, can my reporting platform even take in the feed so I can show it in aggregation? Um, and that's why you know, with the crypto product we introduced initially, it uses GBTC, which is a publicly traded instrument. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's available at every major broker. So, um, so they can house crypto using GBTC. Right? And there are some other products now that are publicly traded. Bitwise just came out with one, BITW. It's crypto right. index on an ETF. And uh, you've got ETHE, which is Ether, also run by Grayscale. So there are some other publicly traded vehicles that can be housed at the traditional custodian and can, in effect, provide crypto exposure. And that's what our, the index within the system does. It, it basically is a risk on, risk off. It provides a, a, it has an algorithm that essentially drives it to minimize volatility. Uh, it's trend following, so it will put the client uh, or the portfolio in the market when the trend is obviously moving in a in an upwards direction and take it out when the trend breaks and then put it back in. Um, that said, it has, has performance that is around 300% on the year. So not quite as good as the full trajectory of you know Bitcoin this year, but um, the, the, the volatility profile is probably half of uh, right. Bitcoin traditionally. Yeah, and, and in, in the ecosystem that an advisor would use. Um, yes. I, you know, I think- very, By the, the way, very much, sorry, Dave, very much like every other SMA, you're right. It lives right alongside. And the same thing with alternatives, right? You can have a long short living next to a crypto sleeve, living next to a Clearbridge large cap growth all in the same account. So very easy. I think one of the things that maybe advisors are cautious about as well is we hear, um, you know, well, the thing is up 500% already this year. There's only one way for it to go down. Uh, why would I take the leap now? You have any answer for that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's you know that's a, a fair you know statement, right? And and certainly risk uh, to address and and think about. It's happened before, and it went down eighty percent, right? But um, I, I think you could say that about any stock that's come up, right? Whether sure. it be Amazon or you know whatever, right? And can it continue to go up? Um, I think the answer is yes. I don't think you know. When, I think when you we're we're early in this cycle, right? The, the last time we went up to twenty thousand, we were late, right? We had already gone up from, you know, three hundred to three thousand, then to twenty thousand, and um, and we got a lot of the retail obviously coming in at the end. The difference this time is you're not seeing a lot of the retail uh, involvement. What you're seeing are the institutions coming in, right? Like we talked about some of the large managers, and it's very early. So interestingly, yesterday we saw two things that were I think really really interesting. One was uh, Guggenheim CIO Scott Menard come out and say that he believes Bitcoin and the research that they've done at Guggenheim is worth $400,000 per coin. Amazing. That was yesterday, right? And so- and, and right now, but for the listeners who maybe don't know, right now it's like, what, 20,000? It's 22,700 yeah. and change, right? So it's and down he's from- He's calling for 400,000. He is. He's saying that Guggenheim's research tells them that it's worth close to $400,000 per coin, right? And that's, you know, it, it sounds- outrageous, but there are plenty of 
predictions out there, understanding the stock to flow model, you know, Bitcoin isn't limitless in terms of its supply. It only has 21 million coins, 18 million of which have already been minted, a number have been lost. So their production of coins is very limited. The difficulty in producing coins halves every four years. So we just had a halving event that cuts supply. So we went from 12 and a half Bitcoin on a, on a reward to 6.25 Bitcoin on a reward, meaning again, supply was cut. We started at 50, we went to 25, 12 and a half, and that's six and a quarter. Four years now, you'll be three and a quarter. Along with the cut down in supply comes the difficulty in solving the puzzle, if you will, in confirming the transactions via hash. And so as that difficulty continues to increase, the puzzle becomes harder and requires more computing power, which of course costs more. So the cost of producing a Bitcoin relative to the halving and the difficulty in the mining uh, and the hashing, you know, in turn has created a cost that is substantial. Now it's not 23,000, but it's certainly more than what it was at, you know, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. So numbers have come up and, and as a result, the difficulty to mine has increased. But, um, but you know, that said, the fixed supply is, is really the, the important, you know, uh, one of the most important features within Bitcoin. Um, and so, you know, that scarcity value value really allows this to potentially uh, have the ability to go up to um, what some have, have uh, estimated, you know, not only 400,000, but even a million dollars per coin, right? And the comparison that the, the analysts make is really the gold market, right? And what you're finding, and we've seen this, is that a lot of the larger investors are moving from gold into Bitcoin. They just find that it's a better, you know, it's got better utility, right? it's easier, and it's more secure, and there's less of it. And, um, and so, you know, when I think about the predictions, can, can we see 50,000 in 2021? And this is just my opinion, of course, uh, absolutely. Can we see 100,000? Sure, it's very possible. So with 22,000, right, is it expensive? Yeah, it's expensive versus 5,000. But is it expensive versus 100,000? No, right? Can it be? So that's the hard part with this, right, David? It's it's timing, right? And I'd say that, you know, it's tough to buy high. So what you want to do in any company like this or stock or coin or whatever is dollar cost average, right? You may be wrong and it may go down and you want to be able to buy more there, right? And so, um, you know, we've seen corrections within a Bitcoin run of 20 to 40%, right, in a bull run. And we've just saw it. We went from 20,000 to 16,000 overnight basically mm -hmm. recently. And then we rebounded right back, you know, but you think through again, was 20,000 expensive? Well, we just hit 24,000. We had 23,850 last night. So it's 20% a day. So it was 20,000 expensive. That's all relative. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get you. Best time to plant a tree was 40 years ago. The <laughs> best time is right now. Right. <laughs> right. So where does the great point, where does this go in five years, 10 years, et cetera, right? We're very, very early in this cycle. And, you know, folks, uh, sometimes I get this feedback because I've been a Bitcoin bull for a very long time. You know, um, you know, is it a Ponzi, right? Who's to know if it's real? Is anybody going to use it? Let me tell you something. The amount of money that's been invested into crypto infrastructure is in the hundreds, if not uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, probably billions at this point. And you've got firms like uh, Andreessen Horowitz, right? Probably one of the best, if not the best, you know, firm uh, that is private equity venture capital firm, right? In Silicon Valley. And A16 crypto is enormous. The investments that they've made in the crypto space are tremendous. They've been more uh, aggressive than any other firm out there. But you can bet your bottom dollar that a good amount of the private equity dollars over the last three years have been spent on crypto on rails, right? And just, you know, governance and, and uh, facilitation, uh, payment facilitation, et cetera, in so many different ways. So whatever you see today is nascent, right? And we're early, very early. At 20,000, we're early. We're in, you know, inning two. 
So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of upside here, and I think to not give your client access to any of it is, um, you know, is is uh, it's risky, right? Yeah. Because that client will, will find it. For it. That's right. Yeah. And, 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 and when it's 50,000, David, they're going to come back and say, why didn't you get me into this thing? It was 5,000. You had access through SmartX. Right. 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 So, yeah, exactly. And, and I guess the other thing that advisors say, and we won't dwell on this, I could go on forever about this topic, but uh, that uh, they think of it like an equity, right? So it's, well, it's not a revenue, revenue producing asset that I'm owning, uh, like an equity, like a stock is. So the only value it comes, the only value that's attributed to it is what the next person will pay for it after me. Uh, is that the wrong way to think about it? Yes. So it, it's it's uh, it's not unusual, right? But it but it is the wrong way to think about it. Now certainly there's a you know peer to peer it's value, right? It's value that's placed on it is exactly what you say it's worth, right? And that's what you're willing to pay for it, and that's the value. But how much of fiat is the same, mm-hmm. right? And how much of of, of anything you own is similar, right? The value of it is what someone else is willing to pay for it, whether it be a stock or, you know, but you made a comment that that, that I wanted to address and this is why I say that you're wrong. Uh, it's not revenue producing. It is okay. revenue producing, right? So I don't think this is the, I think a lot of folks that think about crypto say it is just what you said, but that's wrong. When you think about, there's lots of different coins, there's lots of different blockchains out there, right? But there are two blockchains specifically that produce a lot of revenue and that's Bitcoin and Ethereum. Right, because to use the Bitcoin network, you're going to pay. Right, if I'm going to send money across the network, I'm going to pay. It's going to be a small amount. Right, I mean, where else can you send a hundred million dollars for two dollars and fifty cents? Nowhere. Right, where else can you send money to China at one a.m. on Sunday morning? Right, have it be there in five minutes without going through seventeen different intermediaries and charging me a ton of money. Right, mm-hmm. and then having currency risk at the same time. Nowhere. Right, but. To send that money cost. Now the transaction costs change as a result of the traffic on the network, but Bitcoin produces revenue on every one of those transactions. Now the money goes to the Bitcoin uh, foundation and that goes to firming up the network and securing the network and such. That network has never been penetrated in 13 years, 12 years, 13 years. So they've done a great job, um, but it is revenue producing, right? And it will continue to be that and will continue to grow. Ethereum is the same. Ethereum has something called gas and you pay gas to use Ethereum. Um, Definance, um, you probably heard of this, uh, decentralized finance, uh, DeFi, very big, uh, going to be coming to your your local advisory soon because you can earn interest on cash using stable coins as much as seven, eight, nine percent where you're earning nothing today. So you will find decentralized finance coming to advisory at some point. Heck, I might, I might even be in front of it. Right. Hmm. But um, but so when you think about that, that uses Ethereum. So Ethereum allows for contracting, right? Unlike Bitcoin, which is just a store of value or, or the ability to pass money back and forth. Uh, Ethereum is actually a smart contract. It means that you can put uh, program rules into the actual contract itself, right? So you know, if you do this, it does that, it pays, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you think about propor- uh, portion, portional ownership of real estate or art, or um, literally gambling. I mean, every sort of transaction that you can think of that has a contract associated with it, tokenized securities, et cetera, they're all gonna run off Ethereum, more than likely. Mm-hmm. There are some secondary networks like Polkadot and some others that are similar, but Ethereum is the one. So Ethereum generates a lot of revenue through gas and gas got very expensive this summer because of DeFi, a lot of usage. Now, what the, what the Ethereum network does, not to go too far down the hole, stop me if you need me to stop, but, <laughs> Uh, you may I'm cut there. this off. I, with you. I, don't, I don't know. I'm so, there so there's two different ways that transactions are confirmed. There's proof of work and there's proof of stake, right? Proof of work is the way that Bitcoin works, and it's the way that 
um, Ethereum works today, and that is that you have decentralized computers that is servers all around the country, right, that are hashing those transactions and earning that Bitcoin fee for going and confirming those transactions, right? So that's proof of work. Same thing with Ether. There are uh, nodes and people that run those nodes and companies that run those that confirm these transactions get paid in Ether. Ether is switching. Ether has something called Ether 2.0 about to launch, and they're switching to proof of stake versus proof of work. So what is that? Well, if you're a large stakeholder, you can vote. Uh, and uh, and you can go ahead and uh, earn uh, an interest as a result of staking your coins, and then being able to vote on the network and some of the 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 uh, the transactions that occur in the network and or changes and such, mm -hmm. and um, and so. And changing, they're, they're eliminating and reducing the payout, right? And so they're still able to generate those fees, but now they can take those fees and they can burn down tokens. They're going to do two things. One, they're going to burn down tokens on the network, which increases scarcity, right? Increases the value of Ether. The second thing they do is continue to um, uh, provide funding for the Ethereum Foundation so that they continue to develop the code and, and secure the network. So... Um, that change is huge. It will increase the transaction speed, but it will also, in my opinion, increase the value of Ether tremendously. Um, I personally am a big Ether holder. I'm also obviously a big Bitcoin investor. I have other coins and hedge fund investments in crypto as well. Um, but I think it's a, it, it's a, it's a big evolution uh, for Ether. And I think that there's a tremendous upside. So when you think of just you know, address those, that comment, when you think about, you know, tokens or, or, or crypto, they do produce revenue when used, right? So you definitely want to focus on the, the blockchains that are being well used versus these nascent coins that nobody uses. And there's some you know, arbitrary value assigned to it because people are trading it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does. And, uh, and, but I think for financial advisors out there, the, the, the message is that this is, uh, you don't need to go down that rabbit hole to make sound investments in the area. Um, you know, the, the, using one of the, the Indexes that are out there now, or the, or the, you know, like would you guys have grayscales on on the SmartX platform, or some of the others that are out there, give you kind of smart bets across the field in the cryptocurrency space, correct? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of optionality out there for advisors that doesn't require, um, you know, all of the the uh, the burden that uh, I think folks uh, thought that it required you know, years ago. Yeah. Uh, one thing I did want to touch on, though, because it, it's interesting to me, and you say you might be out in front of this, so this leads to my question of what, what might we be seeing from SmartX in the future. Um, decentralized finance and advisors making 7 to 8% on cash is something I think that a lot of ears will perk up on. Uh, explain to me what's going on there and what advisors might expect. Yeah, so um, nothing you know that's ready today. Although um, the way that stable coins work, so stable coins are typically one for one versus a dollar. They typically have a dollar uh, in the bank, for example, for example, for every dollar that they provide as a stable coin. Um, but they take that stable coin and they loan it out to other exchanges and and to in uh, decentralized finance, allowing uh, loans to individuals. Uh, so they take their crypto and then they loan against it. And um, and so um, in doing that or being able to do that using, you know, essentially the stable coin, they're paying you interest for it. So they're giving you a piece of the action, right? Um, when you think about interest on crypto exchanges, specifically futures exchanges, it's very high, right? They charge, for example, on a six hour basis when you're talking about futures leverage. So the exchange themselves may be able to earn hundreds 
if a percent off of a dollar, if you will, over a period of a year, right? So, but they need someone to come in and provide that dollar initially. And that's where the investor in the stable coin comes in. And, uh, and so anyway, to sum up as a result, they're able to, you know, they pay uh, a pretty hefty sum. And, uh, and, you know, again, there is, you know, anywhere from call it 4% to 9% on cash, but the advisor would have to take the client, open them up, uh, you know, at a crypto firm in essence, which you will find now at Fidelity coming and others, right? So the custody will be, I think, uh, more streamlined um, and uh, buy that stable coin and just hold that stable coin right? and you get paid cash. And so provide the stable coin doesn't uh, crumble, right? And the, the company behind that doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't uh, go out of business or, or, you know, have fraud in any way. And, and by the way, these are firms like Coinbase. Coinbase just filed to go public, right? So they're going to go public. It's a real firm backed by every major ex exchange in the world, right? The New York Stock Exchange, uh, German Exchange, etc. cetera. Um, the, the amount of, or the, 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 uh, the level of institutional uh, investor that they have there is second to none, right? But they have a coin called USDC. So if you're using, you know, their stable coin, I'm pretty comfortable that, you know, they're not fraudulent, they're fully regulated and that that money's there. So if I had to borrow and you're going to pay me four or 5%, that's probably one of the coins that I would do that with. Um, but I would look for a more, you know, a more structured, a more stronger uh, or strong, or I should say more strong organization that is sitting behind that stable coin. And, and, but that's the way that DeFi works. So I think you will find that, right? I mean, how long could advisors earn no interest, right? Moreover, how long could the broker dealers that are earning no commission and now earning no interest stay in business? So, so that's yeah. forthcoming. I would tell you that, you know, from SmartX, you'll continue to see more innovation. So we like to take what is existing and make it better. And so if we're doing something, we're not just going to do it the way that everybody does it, uh, else does it today. We're going to try to improve on that. So whether it be fixed income within a UMA, um, you know, operating properly, um, you know, continuing to, to, to drive institutional uh, enterprise type solutions on the, on, uh, on, the, on, on the back end or in the back end for these, these, advise, uh, these, these advisory firms or custodians is uh, something we're continually working on and optimizing more integrations with third parties is something that we continue to work on as the demand increases. But, you know, David, we've been cursed with, with, uh, with success recently, right? And, and so uh, the interesting part about roadmaps is revenue producing activities tend to move those around a little bit. And, uh, and we've, we, you know, we, we've luckily seen um, a lot of interest in our product. And, you know, if you don't mind, I just, I'd love to touch on our success a little bit this year and sure, just yes. give some figures. So we started this year at about a billion and a half worth of assets. Um, I believe today we just crossed $10 billion in assets. So 1217. So, you know, fairly substantial increase in our AUM, but that said, we've already contracted another 4 billion worth of assets. Uh, and so, you know, we believe we'll hit 14 billion by Q1 of next year. Uh, right behind that, we've got a fairly substantial pipeline and our estimate is that we'll be over 30 billion by next year. So that far outpaces organic market growth. That's, yes. uh, that's new assets. Those are, those are all new assets. We're a new yeah. firm, right? And so, um, newish, if you will. We've actually been around as a firm for 20 years, but this, you know, division of the firm is, is relatively, you know, new over the last four or five years. So, um, you know, so I think, you know, candidly, when you're, you know, when you have a firm like ours, that's new and innovative and different, the, the, the legacy institutions, um, you know, are, 
uh, more cautious in dealing with those types of firms until they really get that validation, right? And so, you know, working with firms like SSC Advent and NASDAQ and other large organizations has really helped us to gain some of that credibility. But of course, the adoption uh, of late really helps, I think, some of the larger firms to, uh, to become more comfortable. And to that end, we will be making some announcements here on some recent wins that are, are really uh, eye-opening, of one of which I think is the largest or if not close to the largest RA in the country. So we've got a lot of good stuff coming. Okay, that's great. We're going to keep our eyes open for that one. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear about it when it happens. Uh, uh, Evan, this has been fantastic. We're way over our allotted budget of time here, but uh, it's been fascinating. I, I've really enjoyed talking to you. So thanks very much. It's been great. Pleasure is mine, David. Thanks again for having me and let me talk as long as I did. And so if anybody has any questions um, about crypto or SMAs, UMAs, et cetera, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm the CEO here, but I always try to make time for my clients and for, you know, for, for, uh, for advisors that have questions and I, I candidly love to help. So don't hesitate to, to contact me if you need. Okay. That's great. And I think uh, everyone can find you uh how do they find you? If they want to Great question. You. So they can come to SmartX, of course, um, but my, uh, you know, they can certainly email me. My email is evan at smartxadvisory.com. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much, Evan. It's been great. Uh, thank you to uh, listeners there. You've been listening to the Wealthiest Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. We hope you join us next time uh, as we speak to the firms and executives that are helping financial advisors build better practices and better serving their clients. Until then. This content has been made for information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions represent the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of wealthmanagement.com.